You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. I love women. Yes, in the way that one does if they are a lesbian, but also because the amazing women in my life are the reason why I'm the person I am today. From my immigrant aunties to my fierce friends, the women around me are a constant source of love and inspiration. This week, both of our stories come from queer stories. We'll hear two incredible entertainers talk about the extraordinary women that they have known. In our first story, Eddie Ayres, also known as Ed LeBrock, looks to the past to share stories of bravery from queer women in the 1960s. Uh, looking out at you this evening, I'm guessing that most of you will have grown up in a time when being gay, well, perhaps not always celebrated, is at least legal. So here we are, sitting with our queer family, and we have our, fa- our Facebook, our Snapchat, our Twitter, maybe our Instagram accounts, and they give us contact with people who understand us. We're with our people, right? And as much as we choose to be, we can be part of this glorious queer and gay and lesbian life. But what about 50 or 60 years ago? What would we all have done then? Would we have had the bravery to gather like this, to support each other, to love each other? How many of us would be here if it meant arrest or public shaming or imprisonment. So I was talking with my partner, Charlie, and she suggested whether instead of telling yet another story about myself, maybe I could tell a couple of stories about other people, older people, about people who did have that bravery and that self-knowledge to live and to love as they knew they must, that they had to do. So here is a tale of two women. Let's start with Joan. It's 1959. By the way, both of these stories are completely true. 1959. Joan is 16 years old. She's academically very gifted at school, but her dad tells Joan that school isn't something that girls do, and she must leave and get a job. So Joan goes from her beachside suburb of Carrum into the big smoke of Melbourne, And she gets a job working in a maternity hospital. Joan becomes what used to be called a flower girl. She keeps the flowers fresh, she cleans, she makes cotton buds, and she does more cleaning. And all Joan can hear day after day is the screaming of women giving birth. Remember, this is still baby boom time. Joan lives at the hospital in a tiny room and she is unbearably lonely. She's 16, but all the nurses around her are sisters. And that's not sisters how we know sisters. That's sisters as in senior nurses with the, all that and everything. And they're much older than Joan, so no one talks to her. In fact, no one really notices her. Joan bears it for six weeks, which is a lot longer than probably most of us would bear it. And she finally goes back to her dad, and her stepmom in Karen. But then, a bit of luck. Joan gets a job as a playground leader in Carlton, on the corner of Raftown and Newry Street. 
there's a still a part there now if you ever go that way. So Joan meets a young woman who is doing the same job as her. Her name is Marg. And Joan and Marg, now around 18 years old, they become lovers, ardent lovers, as Joan's dad and stepmother hear them through the walls of their bedroom <laughs> and send Joan to a psychiatrist. Joan has no idea why she's going. It's so you can sort yourself out around our divorce, love, says her dad. And the first question from the psychiatrist, Joan, do you have close relationships with women? It all pours out of Joan. And after she has told the psychiatrist everything, she begs her, please don't tell my dad. Joan still has no idea that this is the whole reason she's there. But the psychiatrist now tries her hardest to persuade Joan against being a lesbian. Joan, being super smart, understands and realizes that the only way she can escape is to convince the doctor that she isn't really gay, it's just a passing phase. And the doctor pronounces, praise the Lord, that Joan is now cured. Is she fuck? <laughs> Joan leaves that office, she goes out into the world, she falls in love with women, they fall in love with her, and Joan becomes known in the hospital, where she is now a midwife, as the alpha lesbian. Respect. Joan eventually decides to have a child with her partner. Now, some of you may have had IVF as a single woman in a partnership, gay, straight, whatever. But try getting a doctor to give you IVF 30 years ago as a single woman, let alone a lesbian. It's impossible. So Joan and her partner, they now live in Canberra, they ask their circle of gay friends, but... No one is up to the task, so to speak. Joan and her partner meet a friend from the past, a gay man called Colin, who agrees to father a child. Now, the good thing about being a midwife is you have access to really good syringes. And just in case you need to know, and you may do, it's the smaller ones you need. There's more thrust. And so Tom is easily conceived and he's born healthy and free of the HIV that Colin, the father, now knows he has. There will be no brother or sister for Tom. Tom and his birth mother have had a lucky escape. So Joan, this 16-year-old flower girl who left school with virtually no qualifications, this young woman who was challenged by the psychiatrist in the most confronting way to change her life, her very self, this woman is now a professor. In fact, the professor of nursing research at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. She's held this position for many years. She's 75 this year. She's still working. She's published around 150 papers in international journals. She's traveled the world, and she's become a mentor to a whole new generation of researchers. Joan shows me, every time I meet her, the strength we can all have by being our true selves. And, as this is a tale of two women, let's turn now to Carol. It's 1963, 
Carol is 16, waiting to turn 17, so that she, be she can begin her nurse's training here in Brisbane. Carol's dad has refused to let her stay at school, and she has to get a job while she waits to go nursing. Carol gets a job at Myers. Now, Myers in 1963 is a very, very different place from now. Carol works in the packing room where they pack up fashion items and send them to farmers' wives out in Queensland country towns. The items are often returned a few weeks later to be refunded. And there's sometimes a suggestion that the clothing has been worn for maybe longer than just trying on. A whiff of body odor, a slight stain of country party. Carol is warned in the packing room by an older colleague. Be careful of that girl working with you. She's a lesbian. Carol becomes friends with her. Good friends. The best of friends. Her name is Diane. When Carol finally goes to nurses college, Diane follows her. All the nurses live on site at the hospital, just up the road from here, just up at the Royal Brisbane. They work inhumane hours and then sleep. Their work is their strongest bond. Diane is friends with a woman called Jane, and Carol soon learns that they're lovers. Jane used to be a student nurse at the hospital. She had had sex with the daughter of one of the doctors. The daughter had told her father. She had, he had reported Jane to the director of nursing, and Jane was expelled from the hospital and banned from ever setting foot there again. Diane brings Jane, her lover, onto the campus. The director finds out and orders all Diane's friends into her office. If I ever see any of you consorting with that woman again, you will meet the same fate as she has. Carol invites Jane back to her parents' house for a meal, but little does Carol know that all the mothers of the student nurses have been calling each other, talking about why Jane has been expelled. After Jane leaves, Carol's mother, Sybil, asks Carol, if she's a lesbian. Sybil is chopping yet more vegetables as she asks her daughter, her firstborn. And Carol weighs up to this, the decision to say the truth. It doesn't take long. She knows her family life is so miserable that if the Catholics are hated in her family, what chance do the Puffs and Dykes have? <laughs> to be queer, that's the end of the world. That's the worst of the worst. As Sybil, now with her vegetable chopping knife in her hand, chases Carol from room to room, around the kitchen, down the hallway, up the stairs into the bedroom, Carol denies it. There is nothing anyone else, any of us, would have done. After that, Carol never spends any real time with her parents. And Jane? Jane is left alone in her misery, in her sexuality. There's no time to see friends off campus, and Jane, in the end, drifts to Cairns, where she continues her nurse's studies. She and Diane split up. Jane will ultimately commit suicide by throwing herself out of a hospital window. After such brutally long hours of nursing, 
it's time for a month's holiday. Carol and Diane decide to go to Sydney. They stay with Diane's great aunt, Dorothy, and her husband, Fred. Dorothy smokes cigarettes, which become tunnels of ash in her mouth, precipitous over the soup, the tea, the kitchen sink. Fred, even though he's 80, does push-ups and chin-ups every day in his Jackie Howe. Carol and Diane become lovers on this holiday. They make love for the first time listening to Joan Baez and Bob Dylan singing Just Like a Rolling Stone. Diane and Carol, the girl who, just like Joan, was kicked out of school by her dad, they top the state when they graduate from nursing. Carol goes on to work in London at one of the most prestigious hospitals, where the royals are born, by the way. She spends six years studying Buddhism and Sufism in Indonesia. She returns here to Brisbane and becomes one of the city's most beloved midwives. Fiercely feminist, fiercely protective of her young mothers within the system. With her kind, knowing hands, Carol brings hundreds of babies into this world. Joan and Carol. They were never arrested for being lesbian because being a lesbian was never illegal. It was never illegal because Queen Victoria could never conceive of the pleasure one woman could bring another. Queen Victoria literally didn't believe in lesbianism, or lesbianity, as some like to call it. <laughs> but Joan and Carol, they believed in it. <laughs> you believe in it. <laughs> we believe in it. We, as a community, believe. Actually, we know that the love we have for each other is true, necessary, and perfect. We know that by listening to our elders' stories, we deepen, we deepen our roots, and we make ourselves stronger for the onslaught that is to come. The hurling of abuse, gender whisperers, pedophiles, lifestyle choices, it hasn't finished. We may have marriage equality, but there is a much deeper power, an evil that is still being unleashed. There's another wave of hatred coming, and we must be ready. So remember Joan and Carol. Remember their bravery, and carry them in your heart, because it is only through remembering our shared history that we will all survive. And I'd like to say that Carol and Joan are in the audience tonight. Can you please give them a round of applause? That story was told by Eddie Ayres. Eddie is a musician and writer known for presenting a popular breakfast radio program on ABC Classic FM. If you found this story to be triggering, help is available. Call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636 for 24-hour support. You're listening to All The Best from FBI Radio 94.5. 
I'm Madhura Prakash. Are you interested in creating your very own audio story? All the Best is dedicated to supporting emerging storytellers. You don't need any experience, just enthusiasm. If you're interested, get in touch with us at allthebestradio.com. In our next story, Fahad reflects on his mother's relationship to his sexuality and the power of her love for him. I'm getting married. (laughs) I don't know when, or where, or even who to. But those are all minor details as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to have a wedding that is big, boisterous, and likely to get me in trouble with the law. The best part is that you're all invited. Now, ordinarily, this is every Arab parent's dream. My mum and my aunts have been conspiring to find me a bride since I could talk. But what they didn't count on was that I wanted to be the bride myself. I realized I was gay when I was 11. It happened in a single moment of revelation while watching Rage one afternoon. I took one look at Jesse McCartney shirtless, and I knew that I was a fag. I kept this to myself until I was 17. When I came out to my mum, she burst into tears and said, you're going to get AIDS and die. You can see where I get my sense of melodrama. She would often tell me that all she wanted in life was to see me get married, start a family, and hold her grandchildren. I wanted that too. It just couldn't be with a woman. Mom would, however, try to bribe or coerce me into considering it as an option. When I was growing up, my parents had a strict prohibition on me dating. But the moment I came out, they begged me, begged me to find a girlfriend. A few years ago, my mum offered me this pearl of wisdom. You know, there are lots of gay guys who are married to women. (laughs) And when my mum met my friend Caitlin, who's a ferociously intelligent woman with a PhD in literature, she tried tried to get her to convert to Islam and marry me. None of these attempts were very persuasive, I have to say, but good on her for trying. I wanted nothing more from her than to accept me as I was. I would bring up the men I was dating from time to time, only to watch her mood sour. A few years ago, when I asked if she'd like to meet my boyfriend at the time, she told me, no, I don't want to see him, I don't want to meet him, I don't want to know about him, I don't want to think about him. I thought that this would last forever. Mum was the sort of person who would prepare enough food to feed a village and then freeze most of it for perpetuity. We're talking falafel, kibbe, lentil soup, you name it. She had it all. I couldn't visit her without taking home a week's worth of meals. One day she told me, you know, I really want a chest freezer. It just so happened that my then boyfriend's parents were moving house and were looking to get rid of a chest freezer. This was a perfect opportunity. I asked if it was still up for grabs and then called my mum. Mama, I said, I found you a chest freezer, and it's yours for free, but we've got to pick it up from my boyfriend's place. I wasn't sure how she'd react. What would she say? Would she lose the plot? Would she launch a pair of slippers at me? I got my answer when she rocked up to my boyfriend's place in a ute. (laughs) 
A freezer led to a thaw in her opinions. <laughs> I was so grateful for this. I wasn't exactly sure why, and I still think of it from time to time. I tried my best to prepare for it by giving my ex a little crash course in ethnic etiquette. Remember, you've got to call her auntie. I repeated it again and again. My brother had once introduced my mum to a romantic interest of his. She was a lovely young woman. She, had, she was doing a degree in law, but she made an unforgivable mistake, and she called my mum by her first name. The moment she was out of earshot, my mum looks to my brother and says, I never want to meet her again. <laughs> Fortunately, my ex did a little better. I think my mum was expecting to meet some outrageous glitter-doused fairy. Uh, she would often tell me that I couldn't possibly be gay because I was too masculine. I neglected to tell her that that was actually what I put down on my grinder profile. <laughs> um, but instead of a fruity femme, she just met a beige, middle-class white boy. Whatever it was, she seemed to like him and started to ask after him from time to time. A few months later, she even came along with us to the opening night of the Palestinian Film Festival. We saw a film called It Must Be Heaven, directed by the celebrated Palestinian filmmaker Elia Suleiman. It's now one of my favorite films, but that first time that I saw it, I had no idea that it had a scene in a gay bar and, to my knowledge, the only gay kiss ever depicted in mainstream Palestinian film. Hopefully, it won't be the last. For as long as I've been out, I felt pressure on all sides to be a good Muslim and to keep my sexuality to myself, to cast off my Palestinian identity and remake myself in the image of a white twink. On my 19th birthday, my friends took me to Ark. Okay, you already know where this is going. <laughs> Um, a drag queen on stage called everyone up who was celebrating a birthday. I was young, anxious, and I didn't want to be in the spotlight. But my friends pushed me on stage against my will. One by one, the drag queen went through the lineup, asking everyone their names. They were all some flavor of white, something like Patrick, John, Steve. She gets to me. Fahad, I say. What? Fahad! Well, we're not just going to bother with you, are we? Many of my early experiences in the gay community were the same. Was I really in need of liberation from family, religion, and homeland if this was all I got in return? Time and time again, I've heard, you know those Palestinians hate gay people, right? It implies that our communities are static, that only white settlers are capable of growth and complexity. Only their communities are capable of internal debate and political movement. And yet, there's a kiss in mainstream Palestinian film. And yet, my mother let go of prejudice for the sake of love. Mum died in August 2020 after a long battle with bowel cancer. She'll never get to come to my wedding, but I can only hope that she'd be happy for me, that she'd love me for whoever I am and whoever I become. I want to close by reading a short poem by Palestinian poet laureate, the late Mahmoud Darwish. Imprisoned by Israel for his poetry at the age of 19, he wrote this poem in 1961, dedicated to his mother in the hope that he would one day see her again. To my mother, by Mahmoud Darwish. I yearn for my mother's bread and my mother's coffee and my mother's touch. 
Childhood memories grow up in me, day after day. I love life with a passion because if I were to die, I would be ashamed of my mother's tears. Take me if I come back one day as a scarf for your eyelashes and cover my bones with grass, baptized by your footsteps. Bind us together with a lock of your hair, with a thread that trails from the back of your dress. I could grow into godhood if I could but touch the depths of your heart. Set me if I return as fuel for the fire on your stove and as a clothesline on the roof of your home. Without your daily blessings, I am too weak to stand. I am old. Give me back the stars of childhood that I may chart the homeward quest. Back with the migrant birds. Back to your waiting nest. That story was told by Fahad Ali, a Palestinian molecular biologist and writer who co-founded the Queer Solidarity Film Festival and the Muslims for Marriage Equality campaign group. Today's stories come from the Queer Stories podcast, the recorded version of the live LGBTQIA storytelling night. To hear more or learn about the upcoming Queer Stories book, head to queerstories.com. The next Queer Stories event is October 5th at the Grand Electric, featuring Neralda Jacobs, Anna Piper-Scott, Kiralee Saunders, and more to be announced. Keep an eye out for details at mavemarsden.com. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land, in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunde and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mal Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.